Well, it's good to be here. We're going to be looking at Matthew's gospel today, Matthew chapter 14, specifically verses 22 to 33. Matthew chapter 14, verses 22 to 33, but I want to read beginning in verse 13 to the end of the chapter. So Matthew 14, beginning in verse 13. When Jesus heard it, he departed from there by boat to a deserted place by himself. When the multitudes heard it, they followed him on foot from the cities. And when Jesus went out, he saw a great multitude, and he was moved with compassion for them and healed their sick. When it was evening, his disciples came to him, saying, This is a deserted place, and the hour is already late. Send the multitudes away, that they may go into the villages and buy themselves food. But Jesus said to them, They do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. And they said to him, we have here only five loaves and two fish. He said, bring them here to me. Then he commanded the multitudes to sit down on the grass. And he took the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke and gave the loaves to the disciples and the disciples gave to the multitudes. So they all ate and were filled and they took up 12 baskets full of the fragments that remained. Now those who had eaten were about 5,000 men besides women and children. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, while he sent the multitudes away. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Now, when evening came, he was alone there. But the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. Now, in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them, walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a ghost. And they cried out for fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Be of good cheer. It is I. I do not uh, not be afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. So he said, Come. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Then arose, or rather, then those who were in the boat came and worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. When they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent out into all that surrounding region, brought to him all who were sick, and begged him that they might only touch the hem of his garment. And as many as touched it were made perfectly well. Amen. Let us pray. Our God and our Father, we thank you for this Lord's Day and the privilege to gather in the house of God. We thank you for the people of God, for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, and for the great privilege that is ours to be able to come to the Father through the Son and the power of the Holy Spirit in this corporate place. We pray that wherever your people are gathered together, you would be glorified, you would be worshipped, you would be pleased to bless and, and encourage the saints of Christ, build us up in our most holy faith, and as well, we pray for the salvation of sinners, those who are dead in their trespasses and sins. We pray that you would call them out of darkness into marvelous light to confess Jesus as the Son of God, as Lord and Savior. We pray for the the proclamation of your truth, that it would run swiftly and be glorified throughout the earth, that men, women, boys and girls from every tribe and tongue and people and nation would come to you, would know the joy of being found in Christ Jesus, not having their own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is given by you, received by faith alone. Forgive us now for our sin and our transgression, and everything that darkens our understanding, cleanse us in that precious blood. We reflect upon the psalmist who said, if you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? There is forgiveness with you that you may be feared, and in this we greatly rejoice. So guide us now by your Spirit, and we ask this through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. 
Well, this morning, as I mentioned, we're going to look at this section in 22 to 33. It's similar to Matthew chapter 8, where the disciples are in the boat, and a storm comes, and Jesus calms the storm. There's a couple of different emphases here in this particular section, but one of the things that Matthew does throughout his gospel is he not only develops and sets forth a great doctrine of Christ or Christology, but he also shows disciples uh, uh, lessons on discipleship, and he does this in this passage. So the message this morning is the divine Savior and his afflicted people. Just because we are God's people does not mean we won't go through storms in life. I don't want to get psychoanalytical. I don't want to psychologize the passage, but it does show us, it demonstrates to us that the people of God have the same sorts of hardships that the non-people of God have in this world as well. We're not immune to cancer. We're not immune to job loss. We're not immune to bankruptcy. We're not immune to war. We're not immune from all those things, but we have a Savior who bids us to not fear to be of good courage, to know that he is, in fact, control, uh, uh, in control of and ruler over all those things. So in this particular section that I read, it records miracles around the lake that show Christ's sovereignty over nature. He feeds the 5,000. He walks on the water. He calms the sea. And as well, he continues his ministry of healing in verses 34 to 36. The Christological import of this section comes to full expression in verse 33. This is the first time, that the, I'm sorry, yeah, verse 33, the first time in the gospel of Matthew that the disciples confess truly, you are the son of God. So this section demonstrates his sovereign power over nature. It demonstrates his ability to calm his disciples, his ability to spare his disciples from the various things that they undergo. So I want to look first at the storm on the sea in verses 22 to 27. Secondly, the salvation at sea in verses 28 to 32. And then finally, the significance of the event on the sea in verse 33. But let's look first at this storm in verses 22 to 27. Now, when we compare the parallel passage, specifically in John 6, Jesus feeds the multitudes, and there they want to take him by force and make him a king. And then we get this particular section. I think that describes why, according to verse 22, it says, immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. He wanted to temper, he wanted to dampen any sort of a messianic uproar. So in John 6, 15, they want to take him by force and make him a king. Why? Because he just fed 5,000 people. They were similar to us. We like a king, we like an authority, we like a civil figure that provides for us. And Jesus did that very thing. So he bids his disciples to get into the boat, go before him to the other side. And it's a strong verb. It means to compel, to force, to urge strongly. He does not, at this point, want to foster a messianic expectation among the multitudes. And then notice he sends the multitudes away, according to verse 22b. Now, they have full bellies. They have indeed eaten the the good gifts that he had given to them. And then notice what the Savior does, according to verse 23. It says, when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. He sought that solitude. He needed that communion with his father. We see that in the gospel records several times. The Lord Jesus was a man. As our brother prayed, he assumed our humanity with all the essential properties thereof and the common infirmities except without sin. So according to his humanity as a man of sorrows and one acquainted with grief, he spent a lot of time in communion with his father. He prayed. He sought that solitude. He himself needed to commune with God most high. Certainly an example for us, we need to carve out time in our busy lives and busy schedules and busy days to seek out communion with our blessed God. We don't absent ourselves from the public means of grace. We shouldn't absent ourselves from the closet or from the family altar. It is good to commune with God. The Lord Jesus sets forth that particular example by way of illustration here. And then notice he was alone until evening. Now, later it's going to speak of the fourth watch. This would have been about three in the morning till six in the morning. So three in the morning till six in the morning. But according to verse 23, he, uh, uh, when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Now, when evening came, that's probably dusk. So he's 
there communing in solitude with his father until that fourth watch when he comes to meet with the disciples. And that brings us to the actual storm in verse 24. Notice, but the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. Now we read that, we understand it's the Sea of Galilee. We realize it's not the Pacific Ocean, it's not the Atlantic, it's not the Mediterranean, it's not the Aegean. So how bad could a storm be on that particular sea? Again, in Matthew chapter 8, we have the same emphasis that the disciples are in the boat on the sea, and there is a great storm. Now, remember that uh, uh, several of these disciples were experienced fishermen. These were not novices. These weren't new boaters. I've thought to myself with reference to boating. It's kind of like bacon for me. I never get enough of either. I'd like more bacon in my life, and I'd like more boat in my life. I'd never get any boating. But if I were to go out on a boat and there was any kind of turbulence, I would be fearful. I would be scared. I wouldn't know how to handle that. But I'm not an experienced fisherman who spends his time in boats on the sea. And so when it comes to this particular Sea of Galilee, there's one commentator who makes this observation. This occurred regularly on that lake since it was 600 feet below sea level and ringed with mountains to the east so that the air would surge through the mountains and kick up huge waves, sometimes eight to nine feet high. So this is no joke. This is a time of tumult. This is a time of jeopardy. This is a time of difficulty in the lives of God's people. Now, I think there are just a few things we ought to observe before we move on. The disciples of Christ, as I mentioned in the introduction, are not immune from the difficulties of life. Just because you're Christ's disciple and you are in an airplane, for instance, doesn't mean there's going to be no turbulence for you. Doesn't mean that planes don't fall out of the sky because there was a Christian on it. I'm sorry if anybody's going to be traveling soon. It's a lady in our church a few weeks ago was traveling to Germany. She said, could you not use the illustrations about air travel? Uh, I, I happen to be flying here shortly. So she's not here. So uh, if you are, I apologize. But, but car crashes, those sorts of things. We're not immune from the hardships of life, brethren. We're not immune from the difficulties imposed by various forces outside of ourselves. And in Matthew chapter 8, Christ was in the boat with them. So you can't say, well, Jesus is my pilot, and therefore everything's going to be okay. Well, Jesus, the pilot at times, uses such circumstances in the lives of his people to affect positive change. Christ as son learned obedience through suffering. Are we going to learn obedience through no suffering, through no difficulty, through, through no tumult, through no trial? Of course not. We're going to have to understand that the presence of Christ in the life of the believer does not mean the absence of trial and of difficulty and of hardship. It doesn't even mean the absolute cessation of the devil's attempt to destruct, uh, destroy us. He roams about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. We considered Revelation 12 in our church recently, and there's four instances of the devil's defeat in Revelation 12. He is defeated by the incarnation of the Son of God. He tried to stop that up all throughout redemptive history. He stopped as well in terms of Michael the archangel, sort of behind the scenes in heaven. He stopped as well when he comes after the church of Christ in the first century. And then he turns his rage, according to 1217, to her offspring, the church in subsequent ages. And we have seen the devil rage against the church, but we have the sure promise of our blessed Savior that he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But that does not mean absence of trial. It does not mean the absence of hardship. This concept of, oh, these bad things are happening to me. I wonder what God is. Where is God? You know, people do that. I tried prayer and it didn't work. I tried to be patient and it didn't work. I, I tried this and it didn't work. Perhaps our mindset is absolutely contrary to that which is imbibed in Scripture. Perhaps we're supposed to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, and in due time, he will lift us up. And then, as well notice, the sea was tumultuous. Christ didn't come immediately. He doesn't immediately respond. You probably experienced that in your own life. I've got hardships. I've got trials. I've got difficulties. I pray, and yet he hasn't come to me. Well, he may not come in your time frame. He may not come according to your schedule. He may not come when you back and call. He comes according to his sovereign will to affect his purposes in your life for your well-being. Think about Romans 8, that wonderful fridge magnet. We know that God causes all things to work for good. 
to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. We need to take it off the fridge and put it in our hearts. And we need to understand that all things there is probably talking about all bad things, because we know that windfalls at the bank are good for us. We know that job promotions are good for us. We know that help, happy, well-adjusted children are good for us. He's probably telling us that all bad things, everything under the hand of a sovereign God works for good because of that sovereign God and his love for those who are the called, the ones who are called according to his purpose. So Jesus in the lives of God's people does not mean no difficulty, does not mean no hardship, does not mean no trial. If you've ever been affected by that perverse doctrine of the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel, I would bid you to cease and desist. Read the end of Hebrews chapter 11. See what the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel got those Old Testament saints. The writer tells us that they were sawn in two. Probably a reference, at least if history is to be trusted, to the prophet Isaiah. Can you imagine Isaiah the prophet leaving this world having been sawn in two? I think of him as an evangelist. I think of him as an apostolic brother. Isaiah 53 is is glorious. It's almost like the work of the apostle Paul. And yet that man was sawn in two. And so the rest of us are going to just live our lives in perfect peace and harmony. No, there's going to be trials, going to be hardship. It's going to be difficulty. There's going to be affliction. And these disciples understood that the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the winds for the wind was contrary. Verse 24. Now notice as we consider continually the storm on the sea, notice the ruler of the waves. Look at the action of our savior, according to verse 25. Now in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them walking on the sea. So he left his solitude to go to his disciples. Notice that the solitude was first. Notice that the solitude came first. There are instances and occasions in the gospel narratives where Jesus leaves the busy mission field to go and commune with his father. There's that bit in Mark's gospel. They're being prevailed upon by the multitudes that want to hear the word and they want to be healed. What does Jesus bid his disciples? Come apart and and rest a while. Spurgeon says sometimes we can do more by doing less. We're not disembodied spirits. A bit of rest for the disciple of Christ is a very helpful thing to encourage, to, to, to move him to further activity and action on behalf of the Savior. So the Lord's solitude, his communion with the Father, preceded the coming to the disciples. But he now comes to the disciples and notice that he walks on the sea. Now, if you look back in Matthew chapter 14 to the feeding of the 5,000, you'll probably know there are what was called or are called liberal theologians. The liberal theologians in the early part of the 20th century are probably the, the high orthodox today, but, but the liberals denied the supernatural. They were sort of like the Sadducees in the New Testament. The Sadducees denied the supernatural. They denied the angelic being. They did not denied the life and the age to come. Well, the theological liberals denied everything that was supernatural in Scripture. Jesus is a wonderful ethical teacher we should follow. We should live to learn to live and imbibe the, the, the Sermon on the Mount. What about the miracles? Oh, it doesn't matter that the miracles happen, doesn't it? it it's not the case. Well, with the feeding of the 5,000, you know how the, the liberals spin that? There was a young lad there that had this fish, and he had these loaves, and it, it inspired everybody else to take out from their own bounty that which they had, and they all shared it together. There was no miracle, no multiplication of the loaves and the fish. Well, they do the same thing with Jesus walking on the sea. Well, it was the the shoreline, or there was a sudden freeze, and there was ice in the water. Interestingly, because, or interesting, because Peter actually sinks in it. And remember that these disciples were fishermen. Many of them, several of them were fishermen. You'd think they know if they were sort of near the sea, uh, seashore. Uh, they're in the middle of, uh, of the sea at this point. So it is a supernatural working of our blessed Savior. But it's not only that. One commentary says, what matters is not that Jesus has done the seemingly impossible, though this shouldn't be disregarded, but that he has performed action, which the Old Testament associates with Yahweh alone. So think about this for a moment. They're on a boat. They are in a uh, windstorm that is contrary. They are on these waves that are now, you know, building up. And yet they see this man walking on the sea. Not only were several of them fishermen, but all of them were conversant with the Old Testament. 
All of them subscribe to the, the religion of, uh, of Yahweh of Israel. Think about these passages. Think about what may have occurred to their minds. Job 9, 8, he alone spreads out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. Psalm 77, 19, your way was in the sea, your path in the great waters, and your footsteps were not known. Isaiah 43, 16, thus says Yahweh, who makes a way in the sea and a path through the mighty waters. Whenever Jesus does these things, when we see these several narratives in the gospel records where Jesus walks on the sea, or when he tells the wind to stop, we see them respond in this sort of a way. What manner of man is this? What kind of a man is this? Who can this be who speaks to nature and is able to calm it? I guarantee you, brethren, if you go outside today and say, stop rain, it's not going to stop. We were on our way out of Chilliwack, and my wife observed a billboard on the side of the road, solar panels, and she made the comment, those will do you just about no good in Chilliwack. I mean, this is the time of the year that we ought to see the, the faultiness of hitching our pony to the cart of solar and wind. This is a fool's errand. Why stop civilization? God put lots of beautiful oil in the ground to fuel civilization onto the future. But with reference to this reality, the, the, the disciples would see this and they, what kind of a man is this? In fact, look at verse 26. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled saying, it is a ghost. And they cried out for fear. Now, with reference to the action of our Lord treading the waves, Gil says, by which action he showed himself to be the Lord of the sea and to be truly and properly God, whose character is that he treadeth upon the waves of the sea, Job 9, 8. In his book, Holiness, a collection of essays by J.C. Ryle, he has an essay there refer, uh, called The Ruler of the Waves, and he's talking about Christ walking on the sea. But then notice, as I said, the disciples see him walking on the sea, and they're troubled. The boat, uh, I'm sorry, verse 26, and when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled. Interesting response, right? They were troubled. Not, wow, they were amazed. That'll come, to be sure. Not, they confessed him as the Son of God. That'll come, to be sure. But, but it, they were troubled. And then they perceived that it might be a ghost. Why would they say that? Again, John Gill in his helpful commentary makes the observation, among others, points out beliefs among the Jews concerning, quote, nocturnal apparition, a demon in human form. The Jews, especially the sect of the Pharisees, had a notion from whom the disciples might have theirs of spirits, apparitions, and demons being uh, to be seen in the night. In other words, they were superstitious in this regard. But think about this for a moment in verse 26. It's easier to entertain the thought that there was a ghost walking on the sea than their friend, their master, the one that they would ultimately confess as the son of God. What kind of a man is this? What kind of a man treads upon the seas in the way that Yahweh of Israel does? See, they are coming to understand. They are coming to maturation. As I said, 1433 is the first time that the disciples confess him in Matthew's gospel as the son of God. You know who previously confesses him as the son of God? The demonic beings in uh, Matthew chapter 9 or chapter 8, rather. The demoniacs see him as the son of God. So at this point, it's easier to believe that there's a ghost or an apparition walking on the sea than to believe it is their friend, their companion, their Lord Jesus, their master. They are troubled and perplexed at the sight of this because this is not normal. This is super normal. This is supernatural. Now notice what the Savior does when he appears to them in verse 27, still under the storm on the sea. Notice his command in verse 27. Immediately, Jesus spoke to them saying, be of good cheer. Now, think about that. Is that what you want to hear when you're troubled and perplexed? Or do you want people to sympathize with you and sad face it with you and, and moan with you? Just enter into my misery and pain. No, we don't typically want somebody to say, buck up, man, be encouraged, be of good cheer. Well, do you know how many times this is in the Bible? 
precisely because we want to just sit in our misery. We want to stew in our despondency. We want to just, you know, glory in our funk, as it were. Well, God, the Lord, comes walking on the sea and says to them, be of good cheer. In other words, as the disciples of Christ, you're not immune from the trials. You're not immune from the storms. You're not immune from the hardships. You're not immune from the disease. You're not immune from economic failure. But in the midst of that, you have the ability as a blood-bought child of the living and true God to be of good cheer. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that tough? The Lord Jesus ends the upper room discourse. He says, in this world, you will have tribulation. Imagine if he stopped there. Wow, what a bummer message. Let's go out and be miserable, guys. No, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. The book of Revelation, there's no accident in the way that John set it up. Revelation 2 and 3, the letters to the churches in Asia Minor. What's going on on earth? Oh, lots of fun and joy and, you know, big, big church gathering. No, there's, there's hardship, there's pain, there's suffering, there's sorrow, there's, there's trial, there's, there's, there's affliction for the people of God in chapters two and three. Well, what's the next scene? Chapters four and five, heaven's response, heaven's view. You get to chapter 12, as I mentioned, the triumph of the Lamb. It gives us a behind-the-scenes view of what happens in terms of Satan's attempt to, to disrupt the coming of the Messiah. And then Revelation 13, not just one beast, but two beasts, one from the sea and one from the land. Miserable, horrible things that affect the people of God on earth. And yet in chapter 14, what do we find? The Lamb standing on Mount Zion with his fair army. Brethren, be of good cheer in the midst of the difficulty because Christ is your Lord. Be in the midst of the uh, be uh, uh, of good cheer in the midst of the hardship because Christ is your Lord. That's the encouragement of the Savior. The Lord's command to his disciples in the midst of trial and difficulty is to be of good cheer. Romans 8, we know that all things work together for good. Now, brethren, as one who sorrows and as one who likes a good pity party, I'm not here to lambast any of you. I mean, I like my misery, too. I like my despondency, too. I like to stew in my, my funk as well. But I need to hear the word of the living and true God. Be of good cheer. In this world, you will have tribulations, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. Whatever's happening, Revelation 2 and 3 does not shake the calm dignity of the throne room in Revelation 4 and 5. Whatever happens in terms of the beastly ramifications of life in this earth in Revelation 13, it doesn't shake the lamb with his fair army on Mount Zion in Revelation 14. Brethren, we have to understand the world theologically. Remember Asaph, those psalms described to Asaph? He was a melancholy fellow. He was a downcast brother. He knew his share of sorrows. And he tells us, he says that his foot almost slipped according to Psalm 73. There's confession going on by the psalmist in Psalm 73. He starts off axiomatically, God is good to Israel. That's his unbudging commitment. Then he goes on to say, but as for me, my, my foot nearly slipped. Why did my foot nearly slip? Because I saw the righteous suffer. I saw the unrighteous uh, 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 flourish. I saw all these things. I saw what, what, what appeared to be topsy-turvy in terms of life. I mean, we're children of the king, right? There ought to be no hardship for us. There ought to be no difficulty for us. There ought to be no uh, affliction in our lives. And Asaph pours out his heart that way. Do you know what reoriented Asaph? You know what got him right back to where he should have been? It was when he came to church. Until I went into the sanctuary, and there I understood that thou dost set them in a slippery place. Whatever they may have now, whatever flourishing they may possess, it is all for naught on that day of judgment. The righteous, however, will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. I'm sort of paraphrasing and spinning it a bit with a New Testament reading. But Asaph understood difficulty. And for a moment, for a time, he says, my foot nearly slipped when I pondered the way that things looked on this earth. So Christ says, be of good cheer. But then notice he doesn't stop there. He makes an assertion. He says, it is I. Now, I don't want to try, uh, you know, I don't want to confuse anybody here, but we probably should translate this word as I am. Be of good cheer. I am. Now, why does he say I am? Well, if you've read John's gospel, you'll notice that the use of I am by our Savior comes up a lot. 
He uses it without a predicate. He just says, I am. He uses it with a predicate. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. But those times where he uses it without a predicate, he just says, I am. He says it in John 8, 24. He tells the religious leaders, if you do not believe that I am, you will die in your sins. John 8, he says that before Abraham was, I am. Why would he say that? Well, they understood what he was saying because they picked up stones to throw at him because they thought he was blaspheming because him being a man made himself equal with God. Where's I am in the Bible? It is the revelation of the name of God in Exodus chapter 3 at verse 14, when Moses says, who shall I say sent me? Tell them I am sent you. So this is the name of God most high. It's not utilized as much in Matthew's gospel as it is in John's gospel, but Matthew's gospel alerts us to the reality that Messiah is divine. Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, you shall call his name what? Emmanuel. Why? Because he's God with us. We see an expression or demonstration of God with us in Matthew 18. What happens when the church exercises discipline? Wherever two or three are gathered together in my name, I am with them. And then, of course, Matthew 28, he says, go make disciples of all the nations, baptize those disciples in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have uh, I've commanded you. And lo, I am what? I'm with you even to the end of the age. So Matthew is as much about a divine Messiah as is John. It's just not as sort of conspicuous. I would suggest we need to understand it in this context as an assertion of his divinity, his deity. When he says, be of good cheer, I am. Be of good cheer for I'm God. Be of good cheer for I am the treader of the waves. Be of good cheer for I am the one that not only called it into being, but has the power and the ability to still it, to stop it, to call the wind to cease. So this is why the people of God can be of good cheer. It's not just because we're foolishly optimistic. You've probably met those people before. They're not Christians, but they're, they're always great. Everything's always fine. They're always upbeat. They've always got a smile. Everything's wonderful. And you conclude they're pretty foolishly, naively optimistic. That's not the Christian mindset. Be of good cheer because everything's great and everything's fine. We're going to be stoics and face our hardships in that manner. No, be of good cheer for Christ is our God. Christ is our Lord. Christ is our Savior. Christ is our friend. Christ is our protector, our defender. Christ is our blessed shield. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward, Yahweh says to Abraham in Genesis 15.1. So it's not be of good cheer and just be foolishly and naively optimistic, but be of good cheer for I am. He's God. In other words, he's got this. Be of good cheer for I have overcome the world. That's the encouragement of the Savior on the Sea of Galilee. It's not some wrong-headed mindset. One says this is the I am of Psalm 77, 19. The I am who provides a way through the sea, a path through the mighty waters, leaving footprints unseen. As Yahweh treads the waters, so does Jesus. He's the son of God, not by creation. He's the son of God, not by adoption, but he's the son of God by nature. All that the father has, the son has, according to the doctrine of divine simplicity. It is a most blessed realist uh, uh, truth for the people of God. Don't be or, or be of good cheer for, for I am, I'm, I'm with you. Another man says, this is no ordinary hello on water. It is the divine Lord addressing his storm-tossed church. But he doesn't stop there. Notice, be of good cheer. It is I, do not be afraid. So again, make that connection. Be of good cheer. Why? Because Jesus is God and he's for you. But also don't be afraid. There's a lot of fear going around in the world today, isn't there? I mean, everybody's fearful. I mean, they're out of their minds. Perhaps some of us, too, we share some of that fear. You ever just get out of bed, you perhaps watch a bit of news and you go, man, it's a mess out there. It is perplexing. It is chaotic. It feels Revelation 2 and 3-ish. It feels Revelation 13-ish from time to time. 
And there is this tendency or a default position in the heart of the people and God's people are included to be fearful, to be fretful, to be the sorts of people that are, that are tied up in angst, to have that trepidation. So what does Christ say when he comes to the, his storm-tossed church? He says, be of good cheer. I am. Do not be afraid. How many times in the Old Testament does God, Yahweh, Most High, have to encourage the children of Israel to not be afraid? What is it about us that are so afraid? We're so afraid of everything, and yet God is on our side. God is for us. God is the one who treads the the waves and the one who brings calm in the midst of the distress. Now, notice the salvation at sea in verses 28 to 32. Look at Peter's request. This isn't in the parallel passages. This isn't in Mark's account. This isn't in John's account. This is Peter here in Matthew. Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, could be translated better as since it is you, Lord, since it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Peter understood something about our sovereign God. He understood that the one who gives the command is able to enable the person to comply with the command. Remember at Lazarus's gravesite in John chapter 11, and Jesus is standing there and he says to the dead man inside, whom they already said, behold, he, he stinketh. He, you don't want to roll that, that, that rock away from the tomb opening because he's going to reek. Uh, that's the reading of the text, brethren. Behold, he stinketh. And what does Jesus say? Lazarus, come forth. And again, brethren, you could find the seminary in ta- uh, cemetery in town and seminary and tell dead people to rise up, and they're not going to do it because you don't have the sovereign power to enable compliance with the command. And yet Christ does, and Peter observes this. And Peter says, since it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Now, Peter stands out amongst the others in Matthew's gospel. For good and not always for good. It's Peter that denies the sovereign Lord. It's Peter that has some, you know, impetuousness about him. But at this point, we see this. Lord, if it is you, or since it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Now, notice the Lord's response. So he said, come. So again, the one who gives the command has the power to enable compliance with that command. It's a most blessed arrangement. And so now notice that the apostle responds, verse 29. So Jesus says, come. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. He walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out saying, Lord, save me. So he steps out in faith. Jesus says, come. What does Peter do? He comes. It's a blessed arrangement. Again, he obeys the command that has been given to him. It's a wonderful thing. If you're not a believer here this morning, I'm going to probably end the sermon by saying, you need to come to the Lord Jesus Christ. You need to look to him. You need to believe in him. Isn't it wonderful that in the pages of Holy Scripture, we have immediate obedience, immediate compliance? When Jesus passes by the tax office in Matthew 9, and he sees uh, uh, Matthew there, he says, come, follow me. Matthew doesn't say, well, I'll wait another 20 years. I'll I'll wait till I get all my, my boats and my houses and all my... No, he comes. He follows the master. When you hear the command of God, the best part of wisdom suggests that you obey the command of God understanding that it's the God who commands that can enable you to comply. Again, a blessed arrangement. So Peter responds, but then notice he sinks because of little faith. He had come down on the boat. He walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid. You you mean he didn't listen to his master? And Jesus just told him, be of good cheer. I am. Do not be afraid. And yet two verses later, Peter is afraid. Do you find a bit of connection with Peter in the Bible? I mean, I'd love to find more connection with Paul, right? I, 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 he's my hero. He's one of my heroes. I just love to be more connected to Paul in terms of practice and, and obviously theology, doctrine, all that sort of thing. But I, I find that I've got far more in, in line with Peter. I'm the, the moron that would just say, you know, you've just told me not to be afraid. You, you've just enabled me to walk on the water. I'm going to see this, and then I'm going to be afraid, and I'm going to start to sing. Again, brethren, I hate to admit that, but yeah, Peter's in the Bible, at least for, you know, doofuses like me. I'm not suggesting Peter was a doofus. Peter was a godly, faithful servant of Christ. But the Bible gives us the foibles, the issues, the, 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 the challenges that our several brethren faced. I mean, imagine if you and I wrote 2 Samuel. We would probably not have included 11 and 12. 
because David was our hero. David was the king of Israel. And there's no way that I'm going to include that when kings went out to battle, he stayed back. He sent Joab in his stead. And instead, he went in to Bathsheba. And in order to cover up that sin, he kills Uriah. I might not put that in because I want my hero to shine. God puts it in because there's one hero in the Bible, and it's Jesus. So when we find Peter doing Peter-type things, again, hopefully it encourages us not to go out and be fearful, not to, you know, take swords and lop people's ears off, not to engage in that kind of impetuosity, I think is the word, I said impetuousness earlier, but when we see things like this, I, I, I hope it tempers the way we counsel people or we talk to friends. I can't believe you're, you're so pig-headed. I can't believe you're so stubborn. I can't believe I was, you know, I just told you yesterday not to fear. And here you are again fearing. Well, in my defense, at least there's a 24-hour separation. Peter's got two verses here. He's got, you know, come and walks for a bit on the ocean or on the water, and then, and then he, he falls, and then he cries out, and then he's got his challenges or his issues. So he steps out in faith, but he sinks because of little faith. When he saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid and beginning to sink. Matthew Henry makes the observation, Christ bid him come, not only that he might walk upon the water and so know Christ's power, but that he might sink and so know his own weakness. For as he would encourage his faith, so he would, so he would check his confidence and make him ashamed of it. Don't know that the brother's far off in that interpretation. That's a good pastoral read on this text. We have that tendency, don't we, to become triumphalistic. We are children of the king. We will slug our way through these trials, and we will be obnoxious to those who don't have the same disposition and frame that we ourselves do. We need to be able to enter in with our brethren. Not everybody's got the same fever pitch of faith that you and I have. We've got some weak ones for whom Jesus died. We've got some trembling souls in the church of the Lord Jesus. We've got some that we need to come alongside of and need to recognize that sanctification is a process. If we struggle with being Paul-like in our faith, we can't imagine for a moment that somebody else might struggle with that as well. Let the reality of God's word temper you, not only in terms of your own response to difficulties, but in your response to those who are responding to difficulties in a way that you don't approve of. We need to be the faithful people of God. He who faints in the day of adversity, his strength is weak. Proverbs say that. Matthew Henry elsewhere says, but that doesn't mean there's no faith. A man shouldn't be defined on the basis of one instance in his life. And brethren, at times the church of God can be vicious in the way that we counsel one another who may be struggling, who may be weak, who may be those types of people that need to buck up and get it together. It is tough to live the Christian life. If you've not faced the trials, the hardships, the afflictions, or the difficulties, trust me, you will. And you'll be able to enter into the lives of others that go through these sorts of things. So notice what he does when he experiences weak faith. He does what the weak faith people always ought to do. When he saw that the wind was boisterous, verse 30, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out saying, Lord, save me. Lord, to whom shall we go? This apostle says in John 6, you have the words of eternal life. Where will I go when I am suffering? Where will I go when I'm downcast? Where will I go even when I betray my Lord? Remember when Peter betrayed his Lord to not a king, not the emperor, not the soldiers, but to a slave girl? Remember that it was the look of Christ that caused Peter to weep bitterly? I've always wondered about that look of Christ. Was it mean mugging? My, my wife, I think, has reminded me, if you mean mug somebody on the streets of Chilliwack and they walk into your church some Sunday, you're going to be very embarrassed. Very embarrassed. You don't mean mugging. It's, you know, the, or the way somebody cuts you off. You, you have to, you have to let them know your, your displeasure. Is that what Jesus did when he looked at Peter? Did he mean mug him? Did he look viciously at him? Did he look vilely, you know, angry at him? He just looked at him. What happens to Peter? His heart breaks and he weeps bitterly. Brethren, Peter 
understood to whom he ought to go in every instance, in every situation, with every difficulty, with every challenge, with every trial. He does what the psalmist says. He cries out, Lord, save me. Look at Psalm 69, 1 to 3 later on as a comparison to this particular section. So notice what Jesus does immediately. <laughs> immediately. I don't know, man. If it was me, I'd probably let you stew a little while in it. <laughs> Just let you feel what your unbelief or your little faith, not un unbelief, little faith. He castigates him for not the absence of faith, but for little faith. Again, if it were me, I'm, I, I hate to admit these things, brethren. It's, it's foul. I, I, it's terrible. But I might let you just, you know, flourish or, or languish, I guess is the word, for, for just a bit so you can really see what, what you've done, what you've made of your life. But immediately, Jesus, immediately, Jesus takes him. Verse 31, immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said to him, Spurgeon says, first caught and then taught. See, I'd want to teach and then catch. I'd want to tell you while you're, you know, doing this in the water, you should have listened. You should have had stronger faith. You should have been better. You should have been strong. And, and then I'll catch you. So that's why I'm not Jesus. <laughs> that's why Jesus is not me. First caught and then taught. He grabs him. Psalm 144, 7. Stretch out your hand from above. Rescue me and deliver me out of great waters from the hand of foreigners. So he catches him and then he teaches him. And it's a chide. It's a reproof. It's a rebuke. Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Ryle says he knows their feebleness and bears long with them. He would have us know that doubting does not prove that a man has no faith, but only that his faith is small. So again, he doesn't upbraid him for no faith, absence of faith. You need to repent, believe the gospel. You need to come to me and be saved. No, he chides him for little faith. I'm always reminded in places like this of Machen's famous quote, where it says, little faith or weak faith won't move mountains. But there is one thing that weak faith will do. It will bring a soul into peace with God most blessedly and wondrously. Now, I'm not saying go out and be of little faith, but I am saying if you have little faith, praise God Almighty and ask for an increase like that man who brought his son to the Savior. Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. We'll never get to the point where that's not our prayer. We'll never get to the point where our faith is fever pitch. We'll never get to the point, even on our dying bed of life, finally reach that pinnacle of faith. It's not been my experience at watching people die. It's not been my experience at reading Christian biography. It's not been my experience in this world of men. We'll always need an increase in faith. Remember in Luke's gospel, it's in the context of asking, how many times do I forgive my, my, my brother who sins against me? Seven times 70, the master says. Do you know what the, respond, uh, the, the disciples respond with? Lord, increase our faith. Why? Because it's hard enough to forgive those people for one thing that they've done. But you're calling us to forgive him for seven times 70? I know my issues, Lord. Increase my faith. So Jesus chides him. He's caught, and then he's taught, and he speaks specifically concerning his faith. Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And then notice, they get into the boat, and the wind ceases. So the wind ceases. They get in, uh, they get in the boat. The wind ceases. Psalm 107, verse 29. It says, he calms the storm so that its waves are still. Now, if you're taking notes, I've called out a few passages today that speak in the Old Testament very specifically relative to this passage, relative to Matthew chapter 8. Again, brethren, they're making that association, and verse 33 indicates they understand what's happening in terms of the significance here. Yes, there's lessons for discipleship. Yes, there's lessons to encourage us. Yes, there's take-home uh, take principles that we can utilize but it's their view of Christ that's growing. It's their view of Christ that's increasing. It's their understanding of the divine nature of our blessed Savior, and that is what they're witnessing. Again, Gil commenting, he walked upon the sea whilst the wind was blowing hard and the waves were tumultuous. He comes into the ship and all is calm. Both winds and sea obey him, who is Lord of both. That 
is the significance, and that's what we end on in verse 33. Notice, then those who were in the boat came and worshiped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. So, brethren, it's not only the miracle. It's not only the fact that he has this power over the sea, and he has this power over the wind, but it's the revelation of his identification. Do not, or be of good cheer. I am. So it's not just what he does in terms of mastery over the created forces of nature, but it's the declaration of his identity. He is the great I am. He associates himself with Yahweh in Exodus 3.14. Again, we're going through John's gospel in our morning worship. We're up to the end of John chapter 8. Do you know how many emphases are in that gospel narrative concerning Christ's relation to the Father? The Father is the one who sent, and the Son is the one who is sent by the Father. As well, this emphasis on the fact that he is the I am. He, it being a man, makes himself equal with God. The Jews understood that. That's why the Jews wanted to murder him. So I've said to our congregation, I'm not justifying, I'm certainly not defending, but at some level, I can't understand why Jews who held to the Old Testament would scoff in the sight of a man who was nothing to look at. Like Isaiah tells us, he had no form or homeliness. There was nothing about him that drew our eye to him. He was a, a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with grief. And yet that man of sorrows, that one acquainted with grief, asserts that he himself is one with the Father Again, not justifying, not defending, but can understand at some level why they pick up stones to throw at him. Well, this is where the disciples have landed in their understanding of the blessed Savior. I'm not suggesting this was the first time that they ever noticed there was something unique about the Savior. I'm not suggesting that they hadn't already seen that he was uh, divine, but this is the first formal confession of it, as I said in Matthew's gospel. So those who were in the boat came and worshiped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. Again, this is a response to God's work in the waters. What happens after Israel crosses through the Red Sea? There's the song of Moses to worship God. I mentioned Psalm 107 earlier, verse 29, he calms the storm so that its waves are still. That psalm continues on. That psalm responds in verses 31 to 32 after he calms the storm. It says, oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. Let them exalt him also in the assembly of the people and praise him in the company of the elders. This is what is a fitting response to the one who is, in fact, the Son of God. We worship him. We love him. We honor him. We adore him. We praise him. We do all that the Bible says is proper and right in the, in the presence of deity. And they see this now, and they confess this now, and they understand this now. So the questions previously, what kind of a man is this? What manner of man is this? Who, who can this be? Who can this man be? Remember, it's the same in Matthew 9, when that paralytic is lowered through the roof. And Jesus, the first thing he says to that, that, that man, he says, son, be of good cheer. Your, your sins are forgiven you. What do the scribes and Pharisees do? Do they say, wow, this is God in our midst. This is the son of God. This is one that we ought to worship and pray. No, they said, who is this blasphemer? Who but God himself can forgive sins? So the disciples come to make this formal confession of the sonship of our blessed Savior. And again, Gil, he's son not by creation as angels and men, nor by office as magistrates, but by nature, being of the same essence, perfections, and power with God, his father. Well, in conclusion, there is instruction for Christian discipleship. I know that we all struggle. If I were to say, I, I think there's probably some people here that might be struggling with their Christian faith. So we all got problems, brethren. We're all messed up. The best of us on the best of days have enough problems to, you know, bore the, 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 the counselors for, you know, a thousand miles. There's just a lot going on in this world. I mean, we have, you know, I, I know it's always been rough. I, I hate that. I, I hate when pastors act like theirs is the hardest job ever. I'm not digging ditches for 12 hours a day in the rain. Praise God. I, that's a tough job, brethren. 
I'm also not really into every, oh, it's, there, there had never been a time in history like ours. No, there's always been wickedness. I mean, the earth was corrupt and exceedingly violent before the flood. That's why God sent the flood, to purge the earth of all the wickedness and godlessness. The one thing I will suggest is that by virtue of that thing we carry around in our pockets, we just get to know a lot more than we ever did, right? I mean, we know what's going on everywhere. We can know the sports scores. We can know the death tolls. We can know the, the tragedies all over the earth today because we've got smartphones. There is a lot going on in the world, and we need passages like these to steady our souls. And the instruction concerning discipleship here, again, the reality of trial and difficulty in the Christian life. I always love new believers. Oh, yeah, this has just been great. I don't want to say, because I'm not that sadistic, <laughs> it's probably going to change <laughs> when he first gets saved, right? And Oh, yeah, this is great. I'm a child of the king. Never, you know, I'm eight foot tall and bulletproof. Nothing's going to happen to me. Always something happens to you. Again, not trying to wish you ill will. Happy New Year. Thanks, Jim. Uh, not, not, not that, but the Christian life has tribulation. When the master says in this world, you will have tribulations, he knows what he's talking about. And he has said that. He said that to the best of men ever, that apostolic band that would go turn the world upside down for Jesus. Why would anybody hate Christians? We pay our taxes. We cut our grass. We raise our children in the fear of the Lord. We're, we're nice for the most part. Why would they despise us? Because they hate God and they hate his Christ. We live in a Psalm 2 situation that will obtain for us until Jesus ushers in the new heavens and the new earth. You will have difficulty. And the reality that God works in the midst of those difficulties, according to his plan and his purpose for your ultimate good. We may not understand it. What's God trying to teach me? I don't know. I, sometimes people will say that. That's a tough pill as a, as a pastor. But, but pastor, what's he trying to teach me? I don't know. But I know he's trying to teach you something. And I'm going to guess that it's conformity to Jesus that's the end game. And again, if the son learned obedience through suffering, I have to tell you, most likely, you and I are going to learn obedience in the same manner and in the same way. And the reality that little faith is not the same as no faith. We should pray to God to increase our faith, but we shouldn't put ourselves in hell or in a reprobate state because we have little faith. Little faith brings a conscience into peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Don't you love Romans 5.1? Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Notice what Paul doesn't say. Therefore, having been justified by a faith that's been fed Puritans, it's been fed Spurgeon, that's been fed Burkhoff, that's been fed everything and has grown and matured for 25 years. Now we have peace with God. Now, the moment we believe by grace, we have peace with God. Justification by faith is the battle cry of the Protestant Reformation. Let us never let go of that. Again, pray for an increase of faith, but understand that little faith is not the same as no faith. Spurgeon says Peter was nearer his Lord when he was sinking than when he was walking. In our low estate, we're often nearer to Jesus than in our more glorious seasons. You've probably seen that if you've gone through trial. What is a typically consistent testimony for the people of God as they go through top trial? I've never prayed more than when I, you know, had that issue. I've never prayed more than when I went through that challenge. I, I've never prayed more than when I fell down that well. I, I've never prayed more when I was hanging there contemplating life and death and reality of judgment. I, I never prayed more. See, God has his purposes, brethren. I don't think Spurgeon is far off there either. We're closer to the Savior the lower we are than the higher we are. Remember, the, 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 it's not Solomon, but it's Agar, I think. He says, give me neither poverty nor riches. Two things I ask. I, I don't want poverty or riches. Why? Because if I'm poor, I'm tempted to go out and steal. I mean, the, the, the Proverbs are the most realistic book on the face of the earth. I will be tempted to steal, but if I'm rich, what will I be tempted to do? Forget God. You see, that's, that's a big problem too. 
And so with discipleship, little faith is not no faith. And then secondly, in terms of the Christological significance, I think we've covered this. He has sovereign power. He is able to do supernatural things. Again, not because he's the son by creation, the son by adoption, but he's the son by nature. He is the only begotten son of the father, full of grace and truth. And so when he encourages us to be of good cheer, when he affirms that he is the great I am, and then when he prohibits us from being afraid, we need to take heed. We need to listen to him, and we need to seek by the grace of God Most High to live in a manner that is consistent with the blood-bought children of God Most High. And if you're not a believer here this morning, this Christ immediately reached out and saved Peter. He does that. When people believe on him, he doesn't say, well, I'm going to let you, you know, languish in the water for a few years. I'm going to let you flail about for a few years. You call out to Jesus in faith. You know what happens? You are saved. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. That, my friend, is the best news you're going to hear in 2023. Well, let us pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the Savior, that blessed Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. We see it in a passage like this. We see his supremacy and lordship over nature. We see his declaration, his revelation as the great I am. And certainly you have brought us to that place to confess that he truly is the Son of God. And may that confession be in the hearts and in the minds and in the mouths of a great multitude today through the preaching of your glorious gospel. And we pray this through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.